Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we are speaking with Andrea Wang, who is the author of 2022 Newberry Honor book, Watercress, which also happens to be the 2022 Caldecott medal-winning book. We're very excited to have her here today. Hi, Andrea. Thanks for joining us. We're so excited to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Obviously, you are Newberry honoree this year for Watercress, which is a beautiful book. And I think it has the very interesting, the very interesting distinction of being the shortest Newberry book ever, like the shortest word count. Have you heard that? I have not heard that. It is 499 words, not including the author's note. And yeah, that's that's a fascinating fact. I'm going to have to work it into my school visits. <laughs> I need to verify that. I may be wrong, but I think that's what I was reading, which is amazing to me. I, you know, because I was on the committee and there is an economy of words, right, in picture books, but your word choice and the way you used it also of course paired with the picture was pictures were so beautiful and i was curious I, do you write poetry as well i have written a lot of really bad teen angsty poetry <laughs> when you were a teen or now when i was a teen okay <laughs> never see the light of day i really hesitate still to call myself a poet I mean, the last time I wrote anything in like a formal poetry format was back in high school because I I took a sharp turn away from writing. And I went when I went to college, my parents wanted me to major in a, a hard science. And so all the reading and writing I did from then on was scientific and analytical. And so I did not expect the text of Watercrest to come out in free verse. It had been prose all along for years and years and years while I worked on it, off and on. And it, it came out, I think I need to credit Bao Fee, author of A Different Pond. And when I read his, and Tibui was the illustrator, their book, it sort of expanded my world of of, and my my perspective of what picture books could be. And Bao is a very noted, acclaimed poet. So I, I have to give him credit for, for showing me the way. <laughs> I love that book. It's so beautiful. It really is. I hadn't thought about maybe that you were inspired from, from that book, but that book is, is gorgeous and has some of the same themes. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. When I read it, I was like, Oh, I have this manuscript. It's been in my drawer for, I don't know, umpteen years. And I need to take this out and look at it again. And I sat down and rewrote it from scratch. Like I read over what I'd written before, but then, and I never do this, like threw it all out and just started with the blank page. And what came out is, aside from a few words that are, that were changed during the editing process, very much what the published form is. So before you said that it was not in poetry form. So had you actually written in prose a picture book form or was it in a more, was it a, was it more long? I think was I, it longer. I think I read that it was a, an essay for adults. Is that correct? Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. You know, 
and I, I tried to go back recently and look for that personal essay, and I couldn't find it. But I do remember after my mother passed away that I was trying to process all of my emotions about that. And I was writing a series of personal essays and, you know, recording myself, you know, in the car, like my thoughts and stuff and, and kind of maybe even speaking my essays. And I couldn't figure out the ending. I couldn't figure out what that whole memory of picking watercress meant to me. And over the years, I would take it out occasionally and play with it and put it back in the drawer. And then when I came back around to writing for children after I had my own kids much, much later, I actually found a first draft of a picture book that was dated 2007. <laughs> All along, I'd been telling people, oh, this book took me eight years, but it actually took me uh, a lot longer than that. And it was written in third person. I had given the brother and sister characters names. I had, you know, it was very long and it was an um, overly happy ending. <laughs> you know, it was, they were all super excited to go pick watercress again, you know, and that was just uh, not the right ending. <laughs> so it took a while. <laughs> is it, is it, I don't know if you know about this, but it's a little bit trendy to forage now. Like they have, we're, we're in Atlanta and they have like a, an Atlanta food map where you can go month by month and figure out what you can forage all around the city. That's a well, they and, do? Yeah, it's really cool. Can and you I've, send it to me? Yeah, and <laughs> I've actually seen people like foraging on the side of some of our bigger roads, like at some of the locations I've seen on that map. So it's it's interesting that I think there's maybe less stigma to foraging now. But I feel, I don't know, when I was reading that book, like I can absolutely see where you and your, your characters were coming from. But I think I'm, I relate more to the parents almost. I mean, not thankfully in the trauma, but I think I'm going to embarrass the hell out of my kids later when they're older, because I would absolutely forage for stuff on the side of the road <laughs> with no qualms. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting how it's become a hip, trendy thing to do. Right. But both Jason and I have heard from so many adult readers about how they felt similarly mortified by having to, you know, pick food from the wild and no matter their background, you know, it's right. not, I mean, it's so different from going to an apple orchard because that's planted for a purpose, mm -hmm. but to like pick stuff from one, one reader said that they were, they grew up in Florida and they had to pick loquats off a tree in front of the McDonald's with everybody watching and how mortifying that was. And I, my heart really went out to them. I took this opportunity to read more of your picture books. You know, I knew we were going to be interviewing you and I hadn't read any of your other stuff until then. And really? I, I'm the, so glad. The Nyan Monster um, is such a favorite at this house. Oh, I, thank you. <laughs> it's beautiful. All of your stuff is beautiful. I, I do. I'm really curious about, because you said your background is mostly in hard science, at least education wise. And I'm curious because all of your work seems to tie back to history. Mm -hmm. And I, w I was just really curious about, have you always been interested in like your personal family history and also the like kind of bigger history? So I think, yes, I've always been interested in my personal family history because I grew up in a family with so many secrets. And I found that really difficult as a child. I found it confusing and I felt very unmoored, I guess is the word I like to use. 
I was just sort of casting about for like where I came from. And, you know, my parents did not really want to talk about their pasts. They were very much focused on the the here and now and the future, you know, and, and we're going to leave all of that hard stuff behind us. And we were not taught any Asian American history in school growing up. I actually hated history <laughs> the entire time that I went through school. And I don't think that that's, that I'm alone in that. You know, I think it's just the way that it was taught uh, back then. And I did study more Asian American history. I min- I majored in Chinese studies as my second major in college uh, because I was taking the language and wanted to know more about the history. But that was all history that took place in China. It still wasn't, you know, Chinese American history. When my parents started to tell me about their history, I think is when I became a little bit more interested and in college when I took those classes. But my books have been my way of responding to things that are going on around me or personal experiences. Um, I think I've always written as a form of communication and conversation because I'm not one of those people that's really articulate in the moment. You know, I'm always like thinking up the response to a question four days later. (laughs) And so books give me the time years and years to come up with the perfect response. The Nyan Monster, my first picture book, was a response to a neighbor who I bumped into after I, my family and I had come home from being in China for three weeks visiting my in-laws. And she stopped to welcome me back. and But she said, welcome back to civilization. And I didn't know what to say in the moment. I just went back in my house. And the Nan monster came out of that microaggression. It was my way of showing people that China is not backwards. It's very modern. It can be very contemporary. And, you know, it is one of the oldest continuous civilizations. So that was, you know, how that book came about. It was this conversation that I wanted to keep having. And and Watercrest is also very much a conversation with my parents who are no longer here. So, And you talk in the afterward about how important you feel it is to share both the good and the bad stories. And we see in Watercrest how, how important that is and how it works out. But I think in a, in a bigger picture, having a book with the the kind of emotional heaviness of Watercress as part of the Newberry canon also shows that it's important to share, you know, both good and, and not universally good stories with children now. And so I was wondering what kind of impact would you hope that Watercress has in the long term in that context? I really hope that the book sparks conversations, those hard conversations, maybe starting out lightly, you know, with the family stories that are fun or heartfelt or and then moving on to the things that, you know, are more difficult to talk about, because I think kids are so perceptive. They pick up on the emotions running through a household, no matter if it's, you know, what's being unsaid, right? And that can be really confusing. And I think that it's 
you know, the book is a way for parents to talk about or maybe hopefully ask their children if there's something their kids want to know about that hasn't been brought up. So, yeah, I hope it, that it's not just seen as an immigrant story, that it's seen as a, a story about sharing our family histories, especially in this time of such grief and loss. That was something that really struck me in the book. There is a, mo- a moment where you find out that there's a family member that passed away, mm-hmm. but it's done so beautifully. It's not looked over, but it's done so beautifully, mostly in imagery. And I was wondering how you talked to Jason about that and how, if that was originally in the script with words or if it was something you, that came out of you talking with, with Jason. It was... Original, the the words are the way I wrote them when I submitted the manuscript to my editor. Um, Jason and I did not, we collaborated a great deal on this book, but I really refrained from telling him what I thought the illustrations should look like. I really wanted him to have his own vision of the book, and I wanted to leave the text open-ended enough that a young child who may not be ready for, you know, really blatant talk about, you know, other children dying could kind of skip over it a little bit, you know? And, you know, it would be left up to the parent reading the book to the child whether they wanted to point out that the sibling had passed away. And, I think you're going to be interviewing Jason at some point, too, and so he'll be able to tell you more about it. But the illustration that he came up with um, was in collaboration with the art director and the editor, and his original illustrations were much starker and bleaker and grimmer. So <laughs> that's, that's scary because the, that page right there is the one that makes me cry every time. So I can't imagine if it were more more emotional. It would be just too much. I could never have imagined what Jason came up with. And Mm -hmm. so it was just such a privilege to work with him and to see his vision. When I wrote this final version of the manuscript, I actually didn't think it could be a picture book, even though I had written it that way. You know, it was just like, this is too interior, it's too sentimental, it's too sad, it's too, you know... how is anybody ever going to portray the flashbacks and the memory? And I had just no idea. But my critique partners were like, you should just send this to your agent. And so I did. (laughs) Um, But everything about this book has been very unexpected to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of which, how, how was it when you got the call about the Newberry? Just mind blowing. We had already found out about the Apollo award. And it's absolutely over the moon about that. And then Jason had found out about the Caldecott the Saturday prior to the awards announcement. And it was so lovely because our editor, Neil Porter, had called me and said that he had some news. And I wasn't expecting anything because I knew from other people that all the calls were made 
Monday morning very early. You know, that's the the lore, right? I think it's, it's changed. <laughs> and he put Jason on the phone and Jason was able to tell me himself that he had won the Caldecott medal. And I, you know, burst into tears, could not be happier and was perfectly satisfied. Like that was just... All I wanted was, you know, for his art to be recognized. And so on Sunday, I was just sitting there watching television with my husband and my phone rings. And I'm like, ah, uh, you know, we're really into this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, what could possibly be happening on a Sunday? But I, I didn't recognize the number, but it didn't say it was a scam. So I picked up the number, you know, I answered the phone call and it was Tad Andraki who said, you know, we'd like to call you back. And uh, so, Jenny, you were probably on that call of and I blathered and incoherently for. <laughs> <laughs> you were lovely. You were absolutely lovely. And yeah, we were all just I mean, I think every single one of the books that were are honored or you know, the winner this year made us all cry. So I think all of us were crying. Like we, some of us were crying at that point. Some of us had just stopped crying. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that comes from, of course, like the themes being very touching, but also just the beauty of all these books and the fact that we could give them, you know, we collectively were able to give them a place in this canon, right? Like that we had any kind of power to do that, but the fact that they were so outstanding. And thank you, because I never expected to win a Newbery Honor for Watercress. It's a picture book, and so few picture books have Newbery recognition. I think Elizabeth Law, one of the editors at Holiday House, had tweeted about it. She'd gone back and looked, and Watercress is only the fifth picture book to have Newbery recognition in some form, and that just blows my mind. <laughs> so. Beautiful words are beautiful words, right? Like, and it has to do with the committee being open, you know, to it. But, you know, when something is so high quality, you can't, you can't just pass it by because it, it's not bigger. You know? <laughs> For this podcast, in addition to interviewing people, we also review, you know, our, our eventual goal is to review all the Newberry books. So we, we hit, you know, this huge spectrum and Watercress has the depth and background and emotional impact like that surpasses many, many other Newberry books, only it does it you know, with brevity, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Thank you. Did you write as a kid? I did write as a kid. I think it comes from being an incredibly shy kid. And when I go to school visits, I tell the kids how I spent my first grade year hiding underneath my teacher's desk, you know, just walled in by stacks of books. And my people, you know, this is <laughs> <laughs> this a progressive town in Ohio in the 70s. My teacher just left me there and I was perfectly happy with that. And little by little, I came out and read books to the other kids, which is what my teacher suggested I do. So Again, it was like a way of having a conversation, right? And so when I started writing stories for school, 
I started also writing stories outside of school to continue whatever conversation I wanted to have with myself or the characters in the books I'd been reading. And I have one of those books I'd made at home, you know, with the cardboard cover and the wallpaper, you know, to make it pretty. And I typed it up on my dad's typewriter and I'd written an author bio in the back. And it said that I was nine and a half years old and I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. So, oh, <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> so it was a long-standing dream, but you know, I I had very practical parents who did not feel like writing was a viable option. And they were paying for college. So hence the hard science degree. I also want to ask you about Magic Ramen. Oh, okay. Because I love reading little, I like, I love reading uh, children's picture book biographies, but I've, I'm, I've just noticed like in the past several years, there've been more and more food-based ones. Well, all your books make me hungry anyway. Yeah. And like, I'm so excited. I was like so excited to read this, you know, and share it with my kid because this is something that, you know, we have a fair amount of noodle dishes that we eat. And so I was just curious about how you came about writing that. That was because my kids were super picky eaters and all they ate pretty much was instant ramen and a few other foods. <laughs> and I was like, I need to know who invented instant ramen. And he had such an interesting name you know, that I, Momofuku and David Chang is a, you know, a very well-known chef and he had a cookbook and I think a restaurant named Momofuku. And I wondered if my, my husband had come home with the cookbook at the same time that I was thinking about writing about instant ramen. And I didn't, I wanted to figure out the relationship between this restaurant and, and the inventor. So I did a lot more research and, you know, discovered this lovely little story of persistence and altruism. And I, for me, that was unusual that someone involved in this business world trying to make a living was actually thinking more altruistically, you know, that he really wanted to help everybody. So, and, it, and then there's the history component too, right? Like I went so far down that rabbit hole, I had no idea about you know, obviously I knew about World War II and the bombings, but the aftermath, I did not realize that the United States sent wheat to Japan to try and help. And it's not a wheat-based culture. You know, it's a rice-based culture. And so what do you do with all that wheat? Well, they didn't eat a lot of bread at that time. So Ando decided to, to use those wheat, I don't know what you call it, donations, to, uh, to make noodles. So that's where that came about. Kind of a confluence of things. I love the style of it too. It feels very much like a comic book, which is a big thing for me. So I just, I I didn't know about it prior and I was just really taken with that. But well, sort of tangentially related, as I mentioned, your books all make me hungry. <laughs> and I was wondering, I, you know, I have tried, I, you know, I love Asian food, but I have not tried watercress in almost any capacity. So between the the sauteed watercress that's actually in the book and the like watercress soup that you've mentioned elsewhere, I was wondering if you have any recommendations for where somebody like me could look for recipes to try it. Oh, you know, I think that there are actually watercress farms. Uh, and so if you look for those websites, they will probably have a lot of recipes out there for you. And I, 
I, I think there probably are also on Instagram, you know. Oh, you're <laughs> right. You're totally right. <laughs> I hadn't so, thought of that. <laughs> and do you have favorite watercress dishes? I prefer it sauteed the way it is in the book, which is funny because when I looked back at this 2007 initial picture book draft, it was actually called watercress soup. And they do make soup at the end. But soup for me is not my favorite food. And I don't know if you know this, but in Chinese culture, there's always a hot soup at dinner. And it was never my thing. I disliked it intensely. So I changed it in the book to what I wanted it to be. Yeah, my I don't know. My first instinct when I read Watercress was just, ooh, I want to try it. Like that was my first <laughs> impulse. Which is not very uh, literary minded. Like there's all this like deep messaging and family history and like emotion. <laughs> and I'm just like, how do I eat that? I've got to try it. <laughs> well, I love that reaction because food is what bridges cultures, right? It brings us all together. So you know, I found it at Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and whatever Asian markets are around you, you could try to. Are there any other upcoming projects that you'd like to talk about? Sure. Actually, uh, my next picture book that's coming out May 24th is called Luli and the Language of Tea. Oh, so this might make that? you thirsty, Marcy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's beautiful. I love her little face. <laughs> She's just so excited, like just so ready, you know? So cheerful. The yeah. illustrator uh, is Haywan Yum, and she did just such a wonderful job. All the children from these 10 different countries are just so adorable. And it is about how the word for tea in over 200 languages is similar, or they all stem from the Chinese word for tea, where, you know, tea was discovered. And as it was shipped and exported around the globe, they took the Chinese words for it. And it's morphed into, you know, tea and chai and che and all these other variations. So it again, it's about a food or drink bringing people from different cultures together. So I just really like exploring the interconnected interconnectedness of everything. So that comes out May 24th. I am currently in the throes of a revision for my next middle grade novel. It's a standalone summer camp story about uh, a Chinese heritage camp. And uh, that's inspired by the, the heritage camp that my kids went to when they were young as well. And there are a couple of picture books that haven't been announced yet that I probably can't talk about in too much detail, except to say that they're also biographies of Chinese Americans who were sort of pivotal in history. So history has been difficult to research during the pandemic, but I'm getting there. <laughs> we would like to know what your favorite Newberry books are or book. So I was going through the list and... I think as a child, the two that really stood out to me were Caddy Woodlawn, which I know is problematic now. At the time, I think I was just really drawn to the story of, again, a girl in a new environment and making her way. And I remember her being slightly feisty. And I really liked that about her because I was not. And the other one was Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, which I just found like, again, like these rats were being persecuted. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, I think looking back, there were a lot of things about that 
story that spoke to me. But at the time, it was just this, it was kind of scary, and it was an adventure, and, and it was exciting. And then, as I said, I, I stopped reading a lot of fiction when I, you know, went off to the other side and studied science and came back to it when I, after I had my kids, I came back to writing again and started reading all of the books that were by Asian authors and Asian American authors, starting with Kira Kira and which really spoke to me and that that character also grew up in the Midwest and and it was a sad story because I really like sad stories. <laughs> I like books that make me cry, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> um, and Inside Out and Back Again, yeah. which was lovely. And I think that's told in verse, right? Mm-hmm. So that was also probably in the back of my mind. Most recently, I read When You Trap a Tiger, and that just really also resonated with me. And I read Regine LaRocca's Red, White, and Hole on a plane and ugly cried the entire <laughs> plane ride. Um, but that was just so deeply moving. Um, I lost my own mother to cancer. Oh, and so I was just like, oh, oh, you know, sobbing. But oh. such a great cathartic read for me. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've been speaking with Andrea Wang, the author of Watercress, one of the 2022 Newbery Honor books, which was also illustrated by Jason Chen, who won the Caldecott for this book. She's written many other picture books, and recently her book, Luli in the Language of Tea, came out, and it's a, it's a very cute book. Please find us on social media. We're on all the usuals. Also, please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.